Thank you for listening to this week's message from Haven Baptist Church. Our prayer is that God would use what you are about to hear to help you grow into a totally committed follower of Jesus Christ. We are in 1 Peter chapter 1. If you're using the Bibles that's provided there, it's on page 1075. The Bible's there below your seats. And 1 Peter chapter 1, we're going to begin reading in just a moment in verse number 3. And, you know, there are some things in life that there just doesn't seem to be enough of. And I believe joy is one of those things. It doesn't seem that there's enough joy in our world. Now, joy is defined in the dictionary as the emotion evoked by well-being or success or good fortune. Uh, Some call it a state of happiness or a state of bliss. But I believe joy is deeper than being happy in in a happy state or even in a happy place. I like to go to my happy place, but uh, joy is deeper than that. Joy in this text that we're going to study today is really a word that's defined as an inner state of gladness that produces outward effects. There's an inner state of gladness in us that has this outward effect upon us. In the Old Testament and the New Testament, joy was the mark of worshipers. It was the mark of believers. Even the church was said to be joyful. As we return to our study in 1 Peter, we see last week or a few weeks ago, we saw that there's hope in believing. There's hope for those who have faith real hope. But because we have real hope in a world that at times seems hopeless, that is also supposed to help us have joy, an inner state of gladness, even though we live in a world that sometimes in turmoil and conflict. So let me ask you, are you a joyful person? If so, what's that joy built on? If so, what and where does that joy come from? Have our joys built on people or possessions or passing pleasures of this world, then that joy will not remain. Today we're going to learn that our joy is to be built upon our relationship with the Lord and the promises and the hope that we have in Him and in knowing Him and learning to find our joy in Him. First Peter chapter 1, this morning, if you're physically able, stand with me as we honor the reading of God's Word We're going to begin reading in verse 3 just to get a running start as to what we're going to study this morning. Verse 3, Peter's going to talk about the blessing of God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's praising God. Blessed be the God and Father who according to his abundant mercy. Aren't you glad God has mercy that's abundant? He has begotten us again, caused us to be born again to a living hope. There it is, a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Here it is, to an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. This is where we'll begin studying today. In this you greatly rejoice. You greatly rejoice. Though now for a little while, if need be, you've been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. I can't wait to get to the part I get to tell you about that. I know what I'm going to say. It's good, but uh, I'm going to, we'll get there in a minute. Verse number 8. Whom having not seen you love, though now you do not see him, yet believing, 
You rejoice. Look at this. With joy inexpressible. There aren't words to really describe the joy that you have, he says. And it's full of glory. That means it's spiritual. It's eternal. It's based on God. It's greater than this world. It's out of this world. Joy. Joy inexpressible and full of glory. Receiving the end of your faith. The salvation of your souls. Let's pray together. Father, may you bless the reading of your word. And may we hide your word in our heart that we may not sin against you. And may we all know where our joy is found in Jesus. And if it's not, Father, may we learn to find our joy in you. If there's one here today who doesn't know you, may today be the day where they can receive the end of their faith, the salvation of their souls. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Joy, the joy of the Lord. And we're going to look at this text. There's four things that Peter says about joy. And right here in this text that can bless us and and help us to understand what it means to really have uh, joy in the Lord. First, Peter talks about there is joy in eternal assurance. There's joy in eternal assurance. Now, in the first part of verse 6, he says, in this. And, of course, that is a reference back to what he's been saying, particularly in verse 4 and 5. Now, in the early stages of the book of 1 Peter, we've talked about some pretty significant Christian doctrines, some pretty significant Christian truths. We talked about the doctrine of election and predestination. You were elect according to the foreknowledge of God, election and foreknowledge. We talked about sanctification. You've been sanctified by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit sets you apart for God when you get saved. We talked about the substitution uh, of Jesus Christ for our sins and he's our saving substitute we were we were sprinkled by the blood of Jesus he shed his blood he's salvation substitute you and I don't have to suffer for our sins because Jesus shed his blood for our sins and today we come to another important doctrine that we believe is Baptist and that is the eternal security of true believers In verse 4 and 5, Peter talks about this. He talks about a reserved inheritance, an inheritance that's incorruptible and undefiled. It doesn't fade away. And in our study, we realized and we looked at how this is so different than everything in this world, which is corrupting, which is fading, which is defiled. And that is reserved in heaven for you. It's there. But not only did we learn about a reserved inheritance, we learned about a secure inheritor. You are the inheritor. And he says, you are secure, who are kept by, verse 5, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. He says, not only is your inheritance kept, he says, but God is keeping you. God is keeping your inheritance for you, and God, by his power, keeps you for your inheritance. But, but he says, in verse 6, he says, but I want to remind you, this joy and eternal assurance is despite temporary trials. This joy that you and I have now in our eternal assurance is despite the fact that we live in a world of temporary trials. In this you greatly rejoice, though now, he says, though now we're in temporary trials. Remember the setting of 1 Peter is suffering. The people were suffering, remember, and they were going to suffer worse. Suffering was coming. More suffering was going to intensify. And so Peter's writing sort of prophetically to remind them when this suffering comes that uh, you're rejoicing in eternity and uh, these trials are here, but they're not permanent. They're temporary trials. And in this passage, he gives us this little verse here. 
Uh, you could preach a whole sermon on this verse, but I'm not going to do that. You'll feel like it when I get through probably. But anyway, uh, four things he says about trials that, that are truths about trials. One, they are passing. In verse 6 he says, though now for a little while. For a little while. That means trials are passing. Even if your trials are for your whole life. And some people are born with a trial they will live with their whole life. But this too shall pass. For the believer, when you get saved, your trials will end one day. Now for the unbeliever, when that person perishes, the Bible says they go to a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth, so trials will not end. But for the believer, trials will end. Sometimes they end in this life. Sometimes God delivers us. But we're going to a place where there's no suffering, no death, no dying, no crying, no separation. Trials are temporary. Paul talks about his trials in 2 Corinthians 4, 17. It's a great verse. Listen to what he says. For our light affliction, read Paul's life, his afflictions were not light. Compared to most afflictions we go through, read what he went through, and you see his affliction wasn't light, but he's comparing it to what's coming for him. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, there it is, it's passing. Paul spent years under affliction. But he said, but it's just for a moment. And that affliction is working for us a far more exceeding an eternal weight of glory. Compared to where I'm going, this suffering is temporary and it's light because I'm going to a place where there's going to be a weight of glory upon me by the grace of God. So our afflictions are uh, passing. uh, Warren Wiersbe said this, when God permits his children to go through the furnace, he keeps his eye on the clock. And his hand on the thermostat. God's watching when you're in the affliction. God knows. They are passing. Number two, they are necessary. He says, if need be. Though now for a little while, if need be. Are all trials necessary? I don't think all trials are necessary. Sometimes I brought trials on myself and I look back and realize it wasn't necessary. Made a bad decision. Did something sinful. Somebody else does something sinful, you suffer. It wasn't necessary. This wasn't a necessary decision. This wasn't a necessary choice. But I made it, and I'm living under reaping what I'm sowing. Wasn't necessary. But some trials are necessary. And when are they necessary? When God knows they serve a purpose. When God knows they serve a purpose. That doesn't mean you know they serve a purpose. But when God knows they serve a purpose. John MacArthur, writing about this text, just gives some of the the things that God uses troubles for. He says, God uses trouble to humble believers. We can get sort of prideful. Uh, We're doing good. We get looking around. We're doing better than so-and-so. God uses trials to humble us. God uses troubles to wean them away from worldly things and point them toward heaven. We get so caught up in this present world. Listen, Americans have it so good, we don't even want to go to heaven. Some of us think it's so good here that heaven's going to be like a step down because we've got everything. And God wants to use these things to wean us from this world. And you know what happens to people who love God is they go further and further and it gets time to go home. They start looking forward to it because they get tired of this world and God's let them go through the trials to wean them from loving this present world. And heaven will look awful good one day to us. Because of the trials of life. To wean us from these worldly things and to point us 
toward heaven. To, to teach them to value God's blessings as opposed to life's pain. You know, when you're healthy, you complain about the few days you're sick. When you're sick, you're thankful for the few days you're well. It's a world of difference, isn't it? And we take God's blessing for granted for so many years, and all of a sudden we don't have those things anymore. Then when we get those things, we're more apt to be thankful. Man, I had a good day today, or this is a good season. And we, it moves us from valuing, and we really place a value on our pain over the, the blessings that God gives us. Sometimes troubles help us to enable other people. Sometimes we go through trials, and the Bible clearly teaches this, that we are to comfort others with the comfort we ourselves have received. We go through trials sometimes so we can have a heart for other people. And we have a platform to speak to other people and love them in the name of Jesus. Sometimes we go through trials because God wants to strengthen our spiritual character. And God is about building you up spiritually. Much more than anything else, God is about building you up spiritually. Much more than worldly blessings which are passing, God is about changing who you are. Trials are necessary. Number three, trials are heavy. He says in that passage, you have been grieved. You have been grieved. It's a word that speaks of a heavy heart. It it means to experience sadness or pain. It's used to describe Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane in Matthew 26. It's used to describe Christians when a loved one dies in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. But it says, you sorrow as those, uh, not like those who have no hope. You sorrow, you go through the heavy time, you go through the heavy season. You go through the disappointment and the anguish and the sorrow, but not without hope. Jesus himself was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Why? Because he lived among people who lived in a world full of sorrows and heartaches and grief and their heavy burdens to bear. The last thing he says about trials is they are various. This word here is translated manifold over in chapter 4, and it means to be um, many-colored. It actually speaks of something that is varied and multiple-colored, and that means our trials can be spiritual You know, sometimes I think a Christian will suffer more than a non-Christian in this world. Why? Because if you're really walking with God, you'll grieve when you sin. You're really walking with God. You don't celebrate sin. You grieve it when other people are in it. Why? Because when you love someone and, and love thinks no evil. And you grieve over that which people laugh about, that which people don't think is any problem at all. You grieve over that when you're walking with God. Those can be spiritual, those can be emotional, they can be physical, they can be relational, they can be material. Suffering of every kind comes to the Christian and they're varied. And so no one's life's the same. Your suffering's not my suffering. Your trial's not my trial. This is just parts of life. But there's hope for the Christian because he has Jesus and because Jesus has him, which is what Peter's talking about. He, you've, you've, got, you've been kept Even though you're grieving right now, don't worry, you've been kept. I was thinking this week, the true way to rejoice in this world is not to rejoice in this world. You get this? The true way to to rejoice in this world is to not spend all your time rejoicing in this world, but to rejoice in your Savior. To find the truth of scripture and hold on to it and let it warm your heart and change your heart and comfort you. A young Chinese convert 
who was born with the given name Lo, became very excited when he first read the Bible and he came to Matthew twenty eight twenty that says, Lo, I am with you always. <laughs> and he took that to mean that he thought that was his name. And so he went around saying, hey, man, God's with me always. And it changed his perspective. You know, he's with you always. And when he saves you, when he takes you to heaven, you're going to be with him always. So this is how we have hope, joy, and eternal assurance that we're saved. But we've got to move on. There's more to it. I told you that could be a sermon right there, but there's more sermons coming. The second sermon, number two, joy in proven faith. There's joy in proven faith. Just as verse six related back to verse, five, verse four and five, verse seven it continues the thought of verse number six. So let's read the end of verse six where it says, you have been grieved by various trials. Look at verse seven, that, so that, that. Here's the reason. The reason you have been grieved by various trials is that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. There is a reason. That I gave you some multiple reasons, but here Peter's going to say, what God's doing in your life right now is he's proving your faith. God is about proving your faith. Now, God's not proving your faith to him because God knows. God's proving your faith to you because you have to know. God knows those who have genuine faith. And God's at work to prove to us whether we do or not. And how's he doing that? Well, he's using present testing. He's using present testing. See, it's been said that a faith that can't be tested can't be trusted. Too many Christians, professing Christians, have a false faith. When trials come, when testing comes, when temptations come, they fall away. When something bad happens, they blame God. They turn away. They walk away from God. And the Bible speaks of this over and over again. As a matter of fact, in Matthew 13, Jesus gave a parable of a man who was a sower of seed. You remember that parable? He talks about a man who had seed to sow, and he threw that seed out on the ways as he walked. And those passages speak of the different hearts of people. And there was this uh, the stony heart. And, and, and Jesus gave us the answer to what each heart was, each, what each heart represented, was represented by these, these places. And Matthew 13, he says this in verse 20, He who received the seed on stony places, this is he who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy this is great it's wonderful yeah man i want to be saved yet he has no root in himself but endures only for a while for when tribulation or persecution arises because of the word immediately he stumbles it's harder than i thought there's trials and troubles see god knows the genuineness of our faith but sometimes we don't know and god wants to work in us. Peter uses a word here, genuineness, that has to do with the testing of metals. And Peter's actually going to describe that in this verse, how God tests the metal of our faith, so to speak, that the genuineness. And he says, he, Peter, Peter speaks of the most precious metal he could think of, gold, being much more precious than, than gold that perishes. Gold was the most precious and most expensive thing that Peter could think of and that he knew. And, and so he says, uh, just like they test gold and just like they purify gold God is purifying you see in that day and goldsmiths would work to in, in, uh, to remove the impurities from gold and what they would do was they'd put that gold in a smeltering furnace 
and they would stoke it hot and the heat would continue and what would happen, the impurities would rise and come out of it and separate. The pure, the real gold would be separated from this impurity, these things that would defile it. But that goldsmith would keep that gold in that furnace until it became so shiny that he could see his own face in it. You wonder maybe God keeps us in the furnace till he can see his image in us. You wonder that God keeps us in the furnace until we begin to look like him, until we begin to look like Jesus. I know I want out of my trials as quickly as we can too. I, I like microwave trials. You know, let's pop that sucker in. I don't want two minutes. It's too long, brother. It'll burn it. Let's, let's see if we can get by with 30 seconds. <laughs> and God keeps us in that furnace until he separates those impurities from us. And trials begin to produce things that are in us. And they begin to show what's in us and what's not. The Bible tells us in James 1.3, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. The testing of your faith produces something. And endurance, it says, is the word. Translated patience there. Romans 5, 3 and 4 says, And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance character, and character hope. See, when God's produced perseverance in you, then your character changes. And when you look back and you realize that your character has changed to be more like Jesus, then you have hope, assurance that you truly do belong to him. If years from now you're no more like Jesus, in fact, you're less than like Jesus than ever, then you have reason to be concerned. Genuine faith is much more precious, Peter says, than gold. Gold was the most valuable thing he could think of. But he says, listen, I want to tell you, there's something more valuable, and it's that genuine faith that you have. It's that faith that God is testing. It's, it's more valuable than gold. In fact, later on, Peter comes back to this gold image, this gold illustration. Chapter 1, verse 18, you have your Bibles open. Look at 1 Peter 1, 18. Look what he says. He's going to talk about our salvation. Knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold. Corruptible things like silver or gold. No, from the, your aimless conduct, meaning you didn't have a clue what you were doing. You were aimless. You were just going on down the path of life. You didn't know what God's plan for you was. You, but he redeemed you from your aimless conduct, received by tradition from your fathers. Means uh, sin gets passed down from the generations. But he says you were redeemed with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. The precious blood of Christ as with a land without blemish and without spot. Here it is. He says, your precious faith, your priceless faith is in the precious and priceless blood of Jesus. You were redeemed by that precious and priceless blood. And one day you will realize how valuable faith is because you will be on the other side because of faith. You will have passed through this present testing. You will have passed through these these trials and you will be on the other side to that inheritance because of that precious faith. But listen, it gets better. And y'all better engage right here. Because he says, listen, there's a future reward when you have your faith proven. Verse 7 continues. Look at the end. So he says, the gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire. Now, here's the deal. This precious faith is what he's talking about. And he says this, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, what is he talking about there? Well, F.B. Meyer says this. He says, we must not look on trials as punishment for the past. That's what we do. We think we're going through something. We think, well, you know, when I was 25, I did this. And now I'm 55. And I know I'm suffering for that. Did you get saved? 
The only way you're suffering is maybe you caused yourself an addiction, you got some physical things like that or whatever, but God is not punishing you for stuff he's forgiven you for. If God's forgiven you, guess who got punished for that? Jesus. You're not being punished for what you did before you were unsaved or even what you did as a Christian that that, uh, God's not punishing you for that when you've repented of it. Because... Meyer says, because all penalty has been borne for, for us by our Redeemer. Now listen to this. But each trial points to the future and is intended to make us partakers of his holiness and to work in us the peaceable fruit of righteousness. So in other words, he's conforming us to more like Jesus. And what Peter is saying is true, true faith. If you have genuine faith, it will ultimately come through life's trials and tribulations. But it will also obtain an eternal honor from God himself. Listen, in this life as a Christian, I want to live for the praise, honor, and glory of Jesus. I want to live giving the praise, the honor, and the glory to Jesus. I want people who know me to see my good deeds and glorify my Father in heaven. That's what the Bible says we're supposed to live, right? Right? Come on. Help me. But that's not what this is talking about. This is not talking about we're going to give Jesus praise, honor, and glory. What this is talking about, when he comes, those who have faith, he's going to give them praise, honor, and glory. Jesus is going to commend Those who have genuine faith and live their lives for him. They came through this sin-sick, trial-filled world. And on the other side, that genuine proven faith will result in God giving praise, honor, and glory to his children. Now, we know this from the scriptures. We know this in other places. Remember, Jesus told the parable of the talents, and he said this, Matthew 25, 21. His Lord said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. I want to hear that. That'll be, that'll be praise, honor, and glory. He says, well done, good and faithful servant. Well done. You, you, you trusted me. You walked through these valleys. You didn't understand everything, but you didn't give up. I didn't reveal everything that I knew that you didn't know. I didn't tell you everything. I didn't tell you why this happened. I didn't tell you why that person did this. I didn't tell you why that situation arose. But you just kept trusting me. You just kept believing. You just stayed faithful. Yes, you got one thing after another and you went through it, but you didn't quit. You didn't say, well, if God don't tell me, I'm going to turn back. And when you get to heaven, he's going to say, praise, honor, and glory. Well done, good and faithful servant. At the revelation of Jesus Christ, when he comes to call his own and to reward his redeemed people. One of the last pictures in the Bible we see of Jesus in Revelation twenty-two, twelve, where he says this. Behold, I am coming quickly and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. I, my reward is with me. Now, that doesn't mean we're working for salvation. That's not what he's talking about. True saving faith always results in good works. And if you have true saving faith, you're going to live for Jesus. See, we don't work for our salvation, folks. We work from it. I got saved. I wanted to work for Jesus. And if you have faith, your praise is going to come from God, not from men. 
And if you get, a, you get discouraged because there's not enough people down here <laughs> clapping for you, don't worry about it. Because you get all the applause of men and you miss heaven, you're going to regret it. We ought to encourage one another, but I'm just telling you, you should live for an audience of one. The one that's going to really matter in the end. Romans chapter 2, verse 29, Paul says this, speaking of the Jews and, and how they deal with God, but he says, He is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is out of the heart and the spirit, not of the letter. Look at this, whose praise is not from men, but from God. One day, those who have real faith, they're going to stand before God. And I believe God's going to say, well done. And that'll mean more to you than anything. It'll mean more to you than everything. Well, there is uh, the joy in um, proven faith. Number three, there's joy in loving fellowship. I can't quit. We got sermon number three, so here we go. Joy in loving fellowship. Uh, Because, see, those who have faith, the Bible teaches, love God. And those who love God have faith. And they work together. Now, Peter says to these people in verse 8, whom having not seen. Now, Jesus is going to be revealed. That's the last part of verse 7. He says, but we know you haven't seen him. Whom having not seen, you love. Now, Peter had seen Jesus, right? Peter had walked with Jesus and talked with Jesus. He had been there uh, through the trials and the miracles. He listened to the sermons. He saw Jesus get crucified. He saw that whole thing. He was right there in the courtyard when he was arrested and he disappeared. And he saw Jesus after the resurrection. He had been with him. He had seen him. But these folks hadn't. These folks that Peter was writing to, they had not yet seen Jesus. They had heard his word. They had believed. Yet they had a true love for Jesus and a strong trust in Jesus. You know who that sounds like? That sounds like us. You haven't seen him, have you? Anybody here seen Jesus? I'm glad nobody raised their hand. You have to be careful when you do those tests. I was counting on you, though, to be honest. Do you believe him? Do you love him? This is these people whom having not seen you love. This was the fulfillment of what Jesus told Thomas in John chapter 20. Remember, Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. That's us today. See, their Lord was unseen, but interestingly, their love was not unseen. Now, I've said this before, and and to a certain extent it's true, but I've I've been thinking about it a lot lately, as you read the New Testament particularly. And, And we, you know, we think sometimes that we struggle with knowing if people are saved. Can we know a person is saved or not? I, I don't know. But interestingly, Peter seemed to know these people love Jesus. Peter seemed to know these people really believed in him. He seemed to know that they had a deep love for him because their life proved that they loved Jesus. Now, people like to think, well, I joined the church or I went forward. I got baptized and 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 that. But that proves all past tense. This is present tense. Peter's saying, I'm seeing currently that you love him. I'm seeing currently. I know you haven't seen him, but I'm watching you and I've been with you and I'm listening to you and and you love him. How is love seen? You know, you can watch people and you can see that they love people. You can see a mother, how she cares for her children, how she holds them or how she's 
taking care of them. You see a father the same way, how he'll protect those children. And you see that. You see that when people are dating, sure enough, they can't stay away from one another. They can't wait to get together. Always having to find time for, you know, get out of the way. And there, there's a hundred people in the room and it's like it's just them too. You can see it when people are married and they love each other. Even though they've been married years. You can see it. How they care for one another. How they're concerned about one another. How they walk through these valleys of life together. You can see that people love each other. And when you love someone, you have this heart for them. You're concerned about what they're concerned about. I was thinking this week, uh, you know, I realized many ways that I love my wife, but one way I realized that I love my wife is that I don't like it when she's unhappy. Now, that's not the if mom ain't happy, ain't nobody happy thing, all right? Because that is true, but it's not the same thing. If that, that is very true. But when you love somebody, you don't want them to be unhappy. When you love somebody, you don't want, you don't want your, I didn't want my children to be unhappy because I love them. I don't want them to be unhappy now. I love them. I don't, I don't want my wife to go through seasons where she's unhappy. When you love someone who's going through a depression, you don't want to do that. In fact, it's the opposite. There's a certain part of you because you love them, you want them to be happy and you want to be, you want to please them. You want to help them enjoy when, you know, parents, those of you who have little children, you need to understand when they're little, one of the things about little children is they want to please you. That's part of loving you. They want to please you. You better enjoy that. Because <laughs> a little while later, they want to please somebody on Instagram. Somebody on their whatever social media, they're more concerned about pleasing them than they are you. Somebody they never met, they'd rather please them than they do you. But that's a sign of loving See, and you and I have to understand, if we love God, there are certain signs that are going to show that we love him. And that's not standing in worship service and singing. That's emotion. You can lift your hands and be all emotional in church. But don't live your life to please God. See, if you love God, you're going to make it your aim. 2 Corinthians 5, 9, Paul says this, Therefore we make it our aim whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. He says, I make it my aim. When I, when I get to heaven, I want to be living my life. So when I get to heaven, he was well-pleased. And while I'm down here, that means I, I want to be well-pleasing to him. Peter saw these people long to please God. These people walked in and enjoyed loving fellowship with Christ. It wasn't a ritual for them. It wasn't a burden for them. Their relationship with God wasn't a list of do's and don'ts. It wasn't that their relationship with God got in the way of other things. But their relationship with God did get in the way of other things. You know this? Love will get in the way of other things. When you love somebody and you're married, it gets in the way of going acting like a single person. When you love somebody, you got children, it gets the way of going in and, and living your life like you don't have children. It gets in the way of all that. Because, why? And you don't care because you love them. And that's the way it is with God. Get, following God and loving God is going to get in the way of some things. But when you love Him, you don't care. You don't miss it. You're glad you're not tied to it anymore because you love Him and you want to please Him. That's what it is. You love him. It doesn't matter. You don't even worry about it. You're not saying, oh man, I wish I could be over there. We got to go to church. 
I'm telling you. We need to look in our hearts. Do we love him? When people will follow us around and say, listen, they've never seen him, but I can see that they love him because I've been watching them. Just like I watch this guy, I know he loves this gal, and I watch this parent, I know they love that child. I watch this believer, and I know he loves Jesus. This is what he's talking about. And he says, because of that, you rejoice with joy that's out of this world. Love God. If someone was to follow your life and they'd say, do you love him? Would your life prove it? Would your calendar prove it? Would your schedule prove it? And I want to tell you something, folks. God convicted me of this last year or so. I've been studying the scriptures and about this issue of loving him. The greatest commandment is what? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And I believe love for God is the litmus test of faith. We like to put a lot of other things on. Do you attend church? Do you, did you get baptized? Well, those are things you should do, and you should do it in obedience. But love for God is the litmus test of where you are. In 1 Corinthians 16, Paul says this, If anyone does not love the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be accursed. O come, O Lord, come. You know what that word accursed means? Let him go to hell. Why? Because he doesn't have faith to begin with. Because if you have faith, you'll love him. And if you love him, it's because you have faith. You claim to have faith and you don't love him. You claim to love him and you don't have faith. Those two don't add up. When you have faith, you're going to love him. When you love him, it's because you have faith. There's joy in loving fellowship right here and now. Whom having not seen you love. Hallelujah. I hope somebody can say that about me. Last thing. Sermon number four. It's a short sermon. My uh, preaching professor said there's no such thing as a a bad short sermon. I determined never to try to find out. (laughs) So. The last thing. The last joy is this, joy in present deliverance. This is a great verse too. Verse number nine, he talks about in verse eight, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Now look what he says, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Now salvation is not complete here. We've talked about this. It's not complete. We're saved, but God's still working on us and we're saved, but we've got to be saved out of this life till we get to heaven. Our salvation is not complete. We are currently in a state where we're receiving. See, the end of our faith, notice this, the end of our faith is not present tense comfort or success. See, a lot of people come to Christ and Christianity today, I've told you this, is, is marketed for present tense comfort and success. We, we market this thing where you'll have present tense comfort and success. Well, what if you don't get present tense comfort and success? The, the end of our faith is not a trouble-free life or a, pra- a pain-free existence. The end of our faith is not prosperity and blessings and money. The end of our faith is the saving of our souls. Now listen. God may choose to save you from sickness or death. God may raise you or somebody you're praying for up off their sick bed. And their deathbed, God may raise them up. But even Lazarus died again. See, if all faith is good for us here and now, we know there's a hereafter. God may favor us with a successful life and a happy family and a great career, but guess what? We're going to leave those things behind too. 
The saving of, the, the, excuse me, the receiving of our faith, the end of our faith is the saving of our souls. Now, how does this work? This means that here and now, right now, God is at work in us. See, your salvation, when it happened, when you got saved, remember we talked about there was a past tense work of God. When Jesus saved you, he saved you from the penalty of your sins. Right then and there, he saved you from the penalty of your sins. You were therefore under no condemnation in Christ. But not only did God save you from the penalty of your sins, he, you entered a, a process where you are being saved from the power of your sins. God is working on you to change you. And then one day, God's going to free you and save you completely from even the presence of sin. You won't even stumble onto sin in heaven. You won't, you won't flip a channel and there'll be something on TV. Because there ain't going to be no TV in heaven, I'm convinced. Amen. Ain't going to be no internet. <gasps> Some of y'all better get used to it. No phones. Ain't no phones. No, God don't need that. What God is doing in the current tense is working out in us what he's worked already in his salvation in us. He's working it out. God is working to save us from a life of sin, a life of disobedience, a life of selfishness, a life of doubt, a life of unbelief, a life of distrust. God's working on us to save us from all that. And all of those things that I mentioned are present in every heart in this room to some level or another. And God's working to bring that out of us and to break us from it and to change us. Why? Because he's wanting to conform us to the image of his son. MacArthur in his study Bible says, Christians now possess the result of their faith, a constant deliverance from the power of sin. Remember what Jesus told us to pray? Deliver us from the evil one or deliver us from evil. It's all around me. It's within me. And I need to pray. And he is working by his grace. Titus 2, Paul says, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we shall live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. God is working in us that we should live this way, soberly, righteously, and godly, here and now. This is our great salvation. This is why we should rejoice. Because God's promised us an an eternal assurance that is waiting for us. God is working to prove our faith here and now that we can know that we truly believe. And in that work, he's causing us to love him more than we've ever loved him. Whom having not seen, we love. And we have this great hope that while he's doing that, he's changing us as we walk through life. Now, sometimes that change doesn't always bring a smile. Sometimes that change brings a tear. But you'd be better off with tears of repentance than smiles of foolishness. Do you have joy in believing? Or is your joy gone? Has your joy been stolen because you've gone through some trials, you've gone through some tribulations, you wonder why God hasn't answered, God hasn't given you the the uh, help. God hasn't answered your questions. God hasn't come to your rescue. And you're still suffering. The Bible says, cast your cares on him. It's in this book. Cast your cares on him for he cares for you. Today, there's a place to cast your cares and ask him to get your life reoriented to who you really are in Jesus. Some of you today, God's working on you and it's painful He's, he's 
putting you through the test of getting sin out of your life, getting bad attitudes, getting bitterness, unforgiveness, whatever it is, you need to come to him today. And some of you right now, we talked about eternal assurance. If you were to die today, you don't have any assurance. And let me tell you, if you're not saved, if you don't know you're saved, you ought to not have any assurance. The worst thing you can be is an unsaved person and the devil's convinced you to be assured that you're okay. If you've never repented and humbled yourself and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Save me. Forgive me. Come into my life. If you've never done that, Jesus wants to save you today. And then you can have assurance. This morning, God's spoken to you. There's needs in your life. You come this morning. We're going to be here for prayer. You need to be saved. We're going to be here to help you with that. You come this morning. Let's bow our heads for prayer together.